All right. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep the, uh, their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in, the, in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness this is the word of the lord please take your seats hey tapper good morning that was kind of like a i'm awake but not really <laughs> anyway hey if today is your first time at our church uh, welcome. Welcome to Taproot. My name is Luis, and I am one of the pastors here. Uh, before I get going into our teaching this morning, now, I wanted to take a moment to honor Ian Fadness right here. Uh, yeah. Ian, for the past three years, has been serving as the director of our student ministry, and he has done a fantastic job. He has served our families. He has served our kids. He has served Jesus and his church. And we are so thankful for Ian. He has been a faithful brother. So thank you, man. Um, over the past few months, we've been praying with Ian and just talking through some things. And um, uh, long story short, 
Ian, uh, through prayer and wisdom and some counsel, has uh, decided to take a step down from leading our student ministry and focus on some other things. Maybe uh, that'll, that'll uh, kind of launch him into his future. He's going to be going back to school in the next couple months. He is going to be just being a husband, loving his brand new wife, uh, Liz, who we love as well, uh, being in community, just uh, being a part of our church. And uh, we, as uh, his church, want to serve him and uh, just honor him and support him in that decision. So this is a two, two-way thing here. We are bummed because we love Ian. He's a great guy. We love him. He served us incredibly well. You can just ask parents, students that he served. He's done a fantastic job. But at the same time, we get it. Uh, and uh, this morning, what we wanted to do, we wanted to honor him in front of everybody because he's done a great job. He's been very faithful. And also, we wanted to pray for him. We wanted to take a moment before we started into our sermon to just pray for this brother who we love. And so what I wanted to do this morning is very simple, and it's not weird, so don't get all strange about this, but I was going to ask anybody that wanted to come here to the front to support Ian and pray for him, and uh, Glenn is going to be praying for Ian this morning as as a way for us saying, we love you, we support you, we send you off into this next new season, and uh, there may be all kind of questions about, well, what are we going to do now? Those are great questions. We're, we're, we're praying through those things, and we're trying to uh, be deliberate and just seek God as to what he would have us do and how we, he is to shape this student ministry as it moves uh, forward. But for today, we want to honor this guy, pray for him, say thank you for how you served us, and man, we just love this guy so much. So Ian, why don't you just step down right here for just a second, and I'm going to ask anybody that wants to come here to surround Ian, and uh, I'm going to take that mic from you, man. And I'm going to give it to, to Glenn here. Hang on, let's see here. I think, I think you're good. So let's pray for Ian and go from there. Father, we thank you very much that you love Ian and Liz. Thank you that you brought them from Idaho to Burien, brought them together. They're now new into this relationship called marriage. We pray your rich, rich blessing on them. May they grow in the experience and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As Ian steps out of this particular form of ministry here at Taproot, would you please guide both him and his wife into fresh expressions of radiating the perfume of Christ wherever they go. We pray, we just finished reading this wonderful passage that speaks much about the virtue of temperance. May you, Father, be a God who treats Ian as a, put him in hot water, and then in cold water, and then in hot water, and then in cold water, and create And Ian Fadness, who was tempered, stronger, more under the control of God the Father, so that wherever he goes, he might waft the lovely, lovely fragrance of Jesus. We pray that his marriage and his pursuit of career, all of this might redound Mm -hmm. to the 
excellency of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you guys. You may be seated. Love you, Ian. I think that goes to me. Yes. All right. Man, I love the church, you guys. I really do. Hey, if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, keep those open to the book of James, chapter 3. We are continuing our study of this great book together. And this morning, we are looking at uh, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 3. Here is the plan for this morning. I want to look at three things today. Number one, I want to look at verses 1 through 12. And my point there is I want to propose that the tongue is, our words are our own personal weapons of mass destruction. Second point I want to make today is verses 13 through 18, and I want to suggest a different approach as to how we are to use our tongues. And lastly, I want to look at Jesus. Let me tell you a story as we begin. And I had, I asked my nine-year-old son permission to tell his story, so uh, you know that I am in good ground here. But a couple a couple years ago, I was coaching soccer, and uh, my practices used to go from 3.30 to 5.30, and uh, my oldest son, Hezekiah, his practices started at 6 o'clock. So I would practice Monday through Friday, then Amanda would drop him off about 5.45 when we were done wrapping up, praying, getting all the gear together. He would leave him with me, and then I would just stay with him for his practice at 6. Well, one particular afternoon, uh, we were done, packed up all the gear, we prayed with the team. And um, 5.45 came along and Amanda wasn't there. And she was always pretty, pretty punctual. Then, you know, 5.50 came along. She wasn't there. 5.55 came. She wasn't there. 6 o'clock came along. She wasn't there. Practice for him had started. 6.05 came. Nothing. I called her, texted her. No response. About 6.10, here comes Amanda driving in. And uh, she parks next to my car. And I'm just out the window looking at her. And she rolls the window down. And she, I can tell. Husbands, you know that sense that we have, that you can tell something bad had just happened. And I can see her in her eyes that she had been crying. And so I look at her and I'm like, uh, what happened? And uh, what had happened was that her and my son had kind of gotten into it a little bit uh, for a pretty simple reason. My son didn't want to wear a specific set of cleats that my, mom, my wife wanted him to wear. And because he is particular like his dad about what shoes he wears, he, he kind of got wound up about it and said some things that were really mean that he should have never said that really hurt Amanda's feelings. And she was crying about this. And uh, man, I don't know, husbands, I don't know about you, but I've always told my kids that my wife was my wife before she was their mother. So I, I got wound up about seeing my wife crying and hurt and what happened. And she opened the door to the van and I looked at my son and I said, get in the car. So he got in my car and I, I mean, I was trying, I mean, I, Everything, I mean, my wife, her feelings, her emotions were hurt by my son. Even though I love my son, I needed to, we needed to have a moment. So we got in the car and drove around to a couple places. And one of the places that I stopped with him at was at a Walgreens pharmacy. Walked into Walgreens 
And I don't know where this idea came from. Maybe because I was a youth pastor for many, many years that I just had this illustration in my mind. So I bought a tube, a, a tube of toothpaste. I didn't say a word to my son, went to the register, paid for it, got back in the car. My son's crying in the backseat. I mean, he probably thought I was gonna, he wasn't going to see the day of the, the next day ever again. So he was freaking out in the backseat, and I'm quiet. You know, the, the silence of dad is always more nervous than him talking. So I drove to my office at the church, got out of the car, took my son into the, my office uh, area, and... I uh, sat, him in, sat him in a chair, gave him the tube of toothpaste and a paper plate. And I said, buddy, I need you to get all the toothpaste out of, out, out of this tube. So there he, he's kind of crying and he's doing it, you know. After he was done with that, I said, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to put it all back in. I want you to put it all back in. And there he is. I can't, Dad. I just, it's so hard. I just can't do it. And basically what I said to him, that's the same way with our words. Once, once your words left your mouth, there was nothing you could have done to bring him back in. Once you said those things to your mom, the damage was done. Once you said those things, that's it. They're gone, never to return. So Kaya, Hezekiah, church, our words matter more than we can possibly imagine. And I hope that that illustration will stay with him for the rest of his life. Once words leave our mouths, they're gone. Our words Matter, And so as we think of that story and as we look at our text today, let me tell you where we have been. This is where we are at. We, at the end of chapter 2, James has laid out the theological and biblical case for the main point in his letter. That is, that a true, authentic, living, genuine faith will lead to a life of Obedience, And now for the rest of the book, James is going to consider several areas of his readers' lives where obedience is necessary. And the issues he is addressing seem to have been particular struggles for his readers. In our text today, James considers how his readers were using their tongues, their words, to tear one another down with strife and backbiting. And instead of doing that, He says they ought to be people of humility and wisdom. That is what Christian obedience would demand. Now, here is the big idea for this morning. So if you can remember one thing, remember this. And this is on the screen. Followers of Jesus should be careful with how they use their words. As Jesus followers, we should strive to use them with wisdom and humility. Let me pray and then we'll keep, we'll keep going here. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. Speak to us. We want to hear your words and may your words shape us and challenge us and encourage us and equip us and convict us. Do those things this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, God. Change us, transform us, help us to be more, be more like Jesus. May the gospel go forth today in power. May Jesus Christ be central, centerpiece to this morning, Lord. And may you meet your people. 
I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, one of the most ridiculous nursery rhymes that we hear is one that we don't think is so ridiculous. You can fill in the blank if you know this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, James is going to tell us that that is the most ridiculous thing we could say. Nothing could be further from the truth. James says this because few things in our lives cause more damage than our tongues. They are our own little personal weapons of mass destruction. Now, according to most statistics, women speak about 20,000 words per day, and us men speak about 7,000 words per day. Now, we will interpret what those statistics mean on a different day, but considering that that's fact, what we have are lots of opportunities every single day to detonate this personal weapon of mass destruction. So James's message is urgent for us to hear. The first point I want to make this morning is how incredibly difficult it is to control our tongue. Verses 1 through 12 in our text contain the single most robust and thorough discussion in the New Testament on the use of the tongue. And as we have been learning, the focus of James's teaching is to bring and spur on followers of Jesus to maturity. That idea will run throughout the whole book of James. In our text today, he will argue that spiritual maturity is evidenced by how we use our words, by the use of the tongue. James is going to show us that taming the tongue or mastering the tongue, controlling what we say, is one of the clearest marks of genuine faith. Our text in James will start with a wise word of counsel to those who aspire to be teachers. Verse 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Why is this? Teachers should be conscious of the weight and potential influence of what they say because words lie at the heart of teaching ministry. Now James, who was a teacher, does not write as one who had arrived. He is conscious of his own shortcomings. He says in verse 2, we, we all stumble in many ways. Now here is the thing. This is not only directed to teachers. This Uh, instruction in James 3 is not only directed to teachers. His words, his counsel are applicable far beyond those who are called to teach. We all use our tongues. And if the taming or mastering the controlling of our words in the tongue is a sign of maturity and genuine faith, then it is so for all Christians. How we use our tongues provides clear evidence of where we are at spiritually. Ever been to the doctor just to go to a checkup and the doctor says to you, stick out your tongue and say, ah, right? We've all been there. 
The doctor, for some reason, seemed to be able to tell us a great deal about our health by simply looking inside our mouths. This is true spiritually. What comes out of our mouths is usually an accurate index of the health of our hearts. Jesus said this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is true. At least it's true for me. Sin may find its easiest exit route via the heart, via the mouth from the heart. Proverbs teaches us to keep our hearts with all vigilance, with all diligence. And this is immediately followed by an exhortation to put away crooked speech and devious talk far from you. Guarding the heart involves guarding the tongue. Guarding our soul involves guarding the tongue. This is hard, right? And as a spiritual doctor, James is going to engage in a very meticulous and specific analysis of the tongue. He says in verse 2, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. In other words, what he is saying is that the mature person is able to tame his tongue and that the person who can do this can tame or have self-control over the whole body. This is hard. Controlling the tongue is hard. And it involves two things. It's like a, like a putting on and putting off, like Ephesians talks about. It involves two things. The ability to restrain the tongue in silence, but it also means being able to control what we say in gracious speech when that is required. And when something that is true and just and worth fighting for needs to be said, we say it with courageous humility. Speech and silence, appropriately expressed, are together the mark of the mature. I can't tell you how hard this is. Can you think of times when you should have been quiet and weren't? Can you think of times when you needed to speak up but didn't? Or times when you did speak up but you did it in a way that was not very helpful? Now, this is not James's first reference to the things that come out of our mouths. In chapter 1, he said, If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not control his tongue, he deceives his heart. And this person's religion is worthless. Taming the tongue, controlling what we say, our own little personal weapon of mass destruction is hard. And you can feel that. You can feel that. Just think of stories when you just detonated this weapon. What we got to remember is that the fight, the fight for vocal holiness is a marathon and not a sprint. But it needs to be fought. This fight ought to be fought and waged incessantly, daily, hourly. Are we fighting it? Now, the question then would come up, why is the tongue so difficult to control. Well, James tells us he now speaks about the power of the tongue. Verses three through five, James will use two illustrations that would have been very normal to him. The tongue is like the bit in the mouth of 
a horse. This little tiny piece of metal controlled the enormous power and energy of the horse, and it was used to give the horse direction. Very possibly, James had seen powerful Roman military horses, and he probably had heard of chariot races of the past. And his point was simple. There is an extraordinary power and influence concentrated in one small object. So it is with the tongue. The second illustration is that the tongue is like the rudder in a ship. Large ships were not unknown in the ancient world. Acts 27 verse 37 tells us of the ship that was to carry the Apostle Paul to Rome. And the text literally says in the Bible that it would almost be able to carry 300 people. These large and heavy vessels were directed simply by the turn of the rudder so they could stay in line with the wind. So it is with the tongue. The tongue is small, but its power for good and for bad is out of proportion for its size. And I feel like we don't realize how powerful the tongue is. We forget how evil it can be because we have become accustomed to its poisonous use and it's become normal. It is everywhere. Misuse of words, misuse of what we say is everywhere. All kinds of media, TV, radio, social media, anywhere you go, we see misuse of what we say, it's poisonous use. We have become accustomed to it. Amanda and I used to go visit uh, her grandmother who lived in Oklahoma. And we love Grandma Lindsay, but she smoked like nobody you probably ever met. I'm serious. This lady could have won a championship. When we showed up to her house, you would open the door and you would be overwhelmed by the smell of smoke. And it was like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to walk inside. But once you did, and once you were around it for a few days, it became normal. And then you left, and then you got to your house, and you would smell your clothes, and you were like, gosh, I smelled like this all weekend. It's nasty. The same thing happens with our words. We are so, we have grown accustomed to its poisonous use because it's used that way everywhere. Now, I'm not a medical expert. So I'm not sure how the tongue works anatomically or how it is connected physically. But what I do know is that our tongues are connected to our hearts spiritually. Our hearts. Our hearts that can either be hardened by sin or transformed by grace. And our tongues show it. Now, James began by addressing the difficulty of taming the tongue. This is meant to bring conviction of sin. Because doing so is hard impossible actually to tame it naturally with our own strength, our own power, because as we have now seen, the tongue has a power that is out of proportion to its size. Now in verses 6 and 7 of the text, James shares a series of vivid illustrations to show us the destruction that the tongue can bring. A year ago, a 15-year-old kid in Oregon hurled fireworks into a parched canyon near one of Oregon's most scenic hiking trails near Multnomah Falls. Beautiful. Beautiful there. This 
sparked a cloud of smoke to rise up towards him and his friends. It was found that some in that group of friends were recording video and giggling about what what just happened, oblivious to the destruction and danger that was to come. What came next was a wildfire that raged through the Columbia River Gorge, and eight months later, a court order mandating the teen to pay more than $36 million in restitution. A forest destroyed and a kid's life destroyed. All because of a little spark. This is the first picture that James gives us to illustrate the destructive power of our words. A small fire can destroy an entire forest. All it takes is one uncontrolled spark. So it is with the tongue. A sharp word, a loose sentence, a callous remark can can cause a blaze that cannot be extinguished. Words can consume and destroy a life. And James is very specific about the source for such destruction. The tongue that sets on fire is set on fire itself by hell, by Satan. We will see in a moment how that is. In verse 6, James also says that the tongue is a world, and depending on translation, a stain. No matter what other graces, what other fruits, what other areas you've matured in, if you have not gained control of the tongue, you can destroy those in an instant by an unguarded and ill-disciplined comment. Our words can destroy someone's world. Our words can destroy our world. Our words can stain our reputation. Our words can stain the honor of Christ. A man that used to work at a restaurant called Johnny Carino's in Texas. So anybody ever been there? No? Yes? One person? Much better than Olive Garden, by the way. Anyway, she was a, she was a great server. So she joins this staff at the restaurant, and uh, this is in the Bible Belt, mind you, okay? Tyler, Texas. And uh, her coworkers were very outspoken about how Christians were the worst people to serve. The most rude, the cheapest, the worst tippers. So they made their opinions clear. They didn't know that my wife loved Jesus. So when they asked her about what she believed, she said that she was a Christian, and everybody's eyes were then on her. She went to work every single day, tried to do her very best, excellent work at what she was doing. And one day, she had a really difficult night serving. Anybody ever served before and have had one of those major tabletops and it's just bad? Yeah, right. So one night, she was a really rough night at the restaurant and something happened, something spilled or whatever. And uh, she used one of those things we call those Christian cuss words. She said, oh, shoot. Right? Yeah, it's funny. But for these people in the Bible Belt, they heard it. And a lady literally said out loud, what did you just say? And Amanda said, I just, 
you know, I just said, whatever, I'll shoot. And she's all, good, good, man. Because if you would have said the other word, now again, this is the Bible Belt, mind you, very religious. If you would have said the other word, my whole perspective of you would have changed. All that to say, with that story, that with our words, we can stain our reputation. We can stain the, the honor of Jesus. We can destroy worlds. Incredibly powerful and destructive. Verse 8 gives us two more pictures. The tongue is like a restless evil and deadly poison. A restless evil. The uncontrolled, unregenerate tongue roams the wild quickly to defend itself. It is swift to attack others. It is anxious to subdue them, always marked by evil. And like I said earlier, it mimics Satan in what it does. The uncontrolled, unregenerate tongue has an inbuilt need to guard its own territory, to destroy rivals, to be first, to be the king of the jungle. A deadly poison. A restless evil. James shares the perspective of Paul as well as of the psalmist. The venom of asps is under the lips of sinners. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And here is the tragedy about the whole thing. This letter from James was not written to unbelievers. It was written to who? Followers of Jesus scattered abroad. These destructive powers were being released within the church. That is why he addresses it. Even though it could be true of non-Christians, he was writing to followers of Jesus. So the question then for us would be this. Is that true of us? Have you ever been in a conversation where the name of a Christian friend or church member was brought up? Whatever the context may be. And the first words of response dishonor him, demean their reputation, and belittle him. Even though this is a brother or a sister in the family of faith. Scottish preacher Robert Murray said this. This is on the screen. He resolved that when a fellow Christian's name was mentioned in company, if he could not say anything good about him, he would refrain from all speech about him. Better that, surely, than to be careless with fire and destroy a brother for whom Christ died. In his resolutions, Jonathan Edward, Edwards wrote this. This also is on the screen. Resolved never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try it strictly by the test of this resolutions. He also said, resolved in narrations never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity. He also said, resolved never to speak evil of any, except I have some particular good call to it. And lastly, he said, resolved to let there be something of benevolence in all 
that I speak. Wow. I should just go sit down right now. Why am I the one saying these things? Because I am so guilty of this. We need to be careful, church. The tongue can be the most powerful, destructive member in its entire body. In the entire body, our own weapon of mass destruction. Now, James continues with his analysis, and now we see the inconsistency in the tongue. He has said that taming the tongue is difficult, that the tongue is powerful and destructive. And now in verses 8 through 12, he shows us the fourth characteristic. The tongue is inconsistent. Earlier in the book, James talked about the double-minded man who was unstable in all of his ways. James is not just saying that to show us a cute little pet sin or a cute little weakness. He is telling us of something that us that should never be a damnable contradiction. It should never happen like a spring that produces salt and fresh water. Our tongue is more contradictory than anything we find in nature, like a fig tree bearing olives, a grapevine producing figs, and a salt pond yielding fresh water. These words are powerful and should not be taken lightly. We should not minimize them. We, Christians, were created in the image of God to bless and glorify him. And it is blatant hypocrisy. It is double-mindedness and sin to bless God and then casually curse those who've been made in his very likeness. But you know what? Our twisted tongues, the twisted tongue of the double-minded person enslaves us. Again, this is Christians he was addressing many of whom were potentially once members of his flock in Jerusalem, now scattered across the world. The double-minded person thinks the unthinkable and speaks in unspeakable contradictions. We do this. I do this. So our tongue, our own personal weapon of mass destruction, is difficult to control, incredibly powerful, extremely destructive, and unbelievably inconsistent. So the question we are all asking, what do I do? But if you look at the text, James apparently give us no, gives us no practical counsel as to how we are to deal with the tongue. Are we left to go to the Christian bookstore or to Amazon to find some book to read? Do we go to a seminar or conference in order to learn how to sanctify the tongue? Why did James give us no practical counsel? I would argue that he actually did. And what I want to suggest is a different approach. A different approach as to how we are to use our tongues. Verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who show in, sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. At first glance, if you're just reading quickly through the book, it seems like James randomly changed the subject and it's now going to address a somewhat unconnected thought to the discussion on the tongue. Like before, in other chapters, James seems to be squirreling again. Some commentaries and theologians agree and believe that he has finished talking about the problem with the tongue and has now turned to a new subject. There is a second school of thought that believes and connects the two together. That James here is teaching us how we are to use the tongue. That is where I landed. Let me parse that out. In the last three chapters, James has been speaking of wisdom. James called his readers to ask God for wisdom in chapter 1, verse 5. In chapter 1, he called for them to be doers of the word and not only hearers of the word. And in doing so, James was defining what wisdom is. Because for James, wisdom is not merely intellectual, but it's also behavioral. He then went on to illustrate that kind of wise living in the example of how we are not to show partiality and more recently in the example of how we are to use the tongue. So again, if the tongue is so dangerous, if the tongue is so destructive, what should we do about it? James has already said in verses, chapter 1, verse 26, that obedience to the word of God requires us to control the tongue. This is something we do. This is an action that we should do. His point seems to be similar here. Instead of being driven by the evil of the tongue, we, our tongues, our lives should be marked by the humility of wisdom. What might that, what might that look like? Our text tells us. First, it tells us that wisdom is shown by what you do and even by what we say. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. It is not what I'm saying. It's not that good behavior makes us wise. It is that wisdom is manifested by good behavior. You will remember that in this chapter... He began with a warning to those who want to teach. They thought themselves to have wisdom and understanding that they could communicate to others. But the test of a teacher is not just what he says, it is also what he does. There's a reason for this. It is because you, it is because you teach just as much by what you say, but also by what you do. Parents, you know this. One of the things that really annoy me about my kids is when they act the way that I do. I didn't tell them to do that. I didn't have to. They learned by watching me. They've also learned by hearing me. Anybody have had one of those moments when your kid repeated something you said and you were like, oh, that should have not happened. 
Now, on the other hand, one of the really cool things about my kids that make me really proud of them is when they act the way that I do. They've learned a lot from the things that I've said to them. But they've learned a lot more from watching how I live. This is why discipleship involves not only teaching in a classroom or preaching from a pulpit. Those things are very important, but you cannot truly disciple someone unless you give them the opportunity to see how you live. But it all starts with wisdom. Wisdom that is based on the fear of God that we so want to honor and glorify Jesus. That we seek and pray and prize wisdom highly so that our beliefs, what we know up here, matches with what we do and what we say. For the glory of God and the flourishing of our neighbors. A prayer for wisdom, I think, is a prayer that God will always answer. And this is what wisdom is. It is humbly hearing and doing God's will as perceived both in Scripture and in the unique circumstances of the moment. Wisdom starts with the fear of God. We so want to honor Him. It is found in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit is intricately involved in this. Giving us counsel, speaking to us, empowering us. So the solution to how we use the tongue, according to James, is this. Pursue wisdom. Seek wisdom. The second thing we have to realize, though, is that there is two kinds of wisdom. Verses 14 through 18 talk about this. There is a second kind of wisdom that is not humble or manifested by good behavior. This other type of wisdom is arrogant and proud. It is ambitious. It is selfish. It seeks to glorify itself. It is jealous when others outshine it. And this other wisdom is not from God. So let's do a quick side-by-side. Wisdom from below. It is bitter, selfish, jealous. It is arrogant. It lies against the truth. It is earthly, natural, and demonic. It brings disorder in every evil thing. It is humanistic. Versus the wisdom from above, it produces good deeds, manifests the gentleness of wisdom. It is humble. It produces hearers and doers of the word. It is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering. It is without hypocrisy. It is heavenly. It comes from God. It is wisdom that we are to share with others and so in peace. So the text shows us that there are two types of wisdom. And we should pursue the one that comes from above as shown in the scriptures. This is the kind of wisdom we need. The wisdom that we should pray for and prize and desire. And hopefully this is the wisdom that should come out of our mouths. And therefore, instead of being driven by the evil of the tongue, may our tongues be marked by the humility of wisdom. Now, we have got to talk about Jesus. Bear with me for just a second. How we use our tongue 
is an important theme in Old Testament wisdom literature. And James draws from that wealth of knowledge in this section. In Psalm 120, the psalmist says this, Deliver me, O God, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Proverbs 16, 27 says this, A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Our tendency to use our tongues for evil is one of the most important pieces of evidence in the Bible to show us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In his famous collection of Old Testament verses showing our sinfulness, Paul uses the tongue as evidence of our sinfulness. He said, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. How we use our tongues, church, should help us realize the depth of our sin, the pollution of our hearts, and the need for saving grace. Is that true of you? Because it is true of me. Sin so often finds an exit from my heart via the mouth. And I don't know about you, but I am guilty. And left to myself, I am dead. Verse 8 in our text literally says, No human being can tame the tongue. Left to ourselves, there is no hope. We are all found guilty. But God. Ephesians 2 says that while we were dead, He intervened, He gave us life. While we were hopeless, he did something and he gave us hope. While we were guilty, we who were guilty, we are now forgiven if we have trusted in Jesus to save us. We who were deserving of judgment are now given mercy. And the only hope any of us has is to be found in a gracious Savior who not only has suffered and died on the cross for all of those times, that we have used our tongues to curse God and our neighbor, but a Savior who never once spoke in such a way as to boast about himself or to demean another person. The only person who ever lived who loved God and neighbor as he should is Jesus. The only person who tamed his tongue is our Savior. James expects us to struggle to control our tongues. He also openly speaks of the difficulty In doing so, he understands the inevitability of the fact that at many points in our lives, our tongues will betray us and show the depth of our sin in the dark areas of our soul. James is not a perfectionist. He knows our speech will give away who we are and what we are. But it is because the tongue is so lethal that James exhorts us to make every effort to tame it, and that is why we also need grace. The grace of God forgives us, yes, but it also empowers us. 
now that we've been forgiven, we are empowered. We have no excuses. We are not left to our own efforts. We are not left alone. And it is crazy to think that many Christians fall into the trap of believing that God gives regeneration and justification, but then we are essentially left to our own efforts to do the rest. This is straight up not true. We are not left to our own devices. He gives us grace and the grace of God empowers us. It enables us to do the works, the good works that Jesus has appointed for us to do with great power and humility. It allows us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. When I discipline my kids, do you think I tell them, if you ask me, if you ask God to forgive you, he will. And then I stop there? No. Is that true? Will God forgive them of what they've done? Yes. But if I stop there, it's half the gospel. I got to tell them that in Christ, there is power to not disobey. There is power to not be unkind to his sister. There is power to not say the things that you've said. There is power in Jesus. I feel like I'm wound this morning. Man, I'm almost done. <laughs> All right, hang on. We'll take a moment here, take a breath. Paul the Apostle said this, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace that empowers us is nothing less than the power of God, the Holy Spirit. The spirit of grace, enabling the Christian to live a life patterned after Jesus by the same power, power that empowered him. Grace that empowers means that as promised, Jesus has not left us or forsaken us. And we are not saved by grace, but then expected to live by our own power until we see him face to face. No, God works in and through us by the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. This is great news because we are not left alone from beginning to end, from justification in our sanctification all the way to our glorification. God is helping us. You're not alone in your fight for vocal holiness. And I close with this, a very practical tool. The most important single aid to my ability to use my tongue for the glory of Jesus is allowing the word of God to dwell in me so richly that I cannot speak with any other accent. When I do, when I, when I dwell in God's word, when I meditate, when I read it and study it and let it permeate who I am, when I do those things, the result is what Colossians 3 talks about, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing and in word or deed, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. As the heart hears with open ears the word of God again and again and again, it is renewed and begins to produce a transformed tongue. The principle then is this. What comes out of the mouth is more and more determined by what has first 
come out of the mouth of God. The sanctification of the tongue is a work in us that is driven by the word of God coming to us as we hear it and study it and linger in it and in dwelling us as we receive it, empowered by the Holy Spirit. May we be a people whose tongues, whose lives are shaped by the scriptures as we are empowered to live by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I love words. I love the way, God, that you use words to bring healing and freedom and hope. You never shame us with words. You never manipulate us with words. You never hurt us with words. You never flatter us, but you encourage us. You never repeat my failures to others. You only bring my sin, my brokenness, our sin, our brokenness to the throne, your throne of grace. You never say too much. You never say too little. You alone, God, have words of life. So incline our hearts to hear and receive every sentence, every syllable that comes out of your mouth in the scriptures. God, my prayer is simple today. Grant us, Taproot Church, greater stewardship of words. As you speak to us, speak through us. Grant us a gospel heart and healing words, words that give life to those around us. I am so painfully aware that my words can bring great harm and death. So help us steward those words with great wisdom and humility and care. When we ought to be silent, let us do so. When we need to speak, help us to speak graciously. When something very hard just needs to be said, help us to speak that with courageous humility for the glory of God. Forgive us for every time that we have misspoken. Help us to remember that our words are powerful. They're destructive. They're inconsistent. And help us to remember that we need Christ. Without him, we are guilty. But in him, we are forgiven. Found in him, we are made new. We need your power this morning. God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that bring you honor. May our words bring you much honor. God, help us to prize wisdom, to seek after it, God, to find it and scrutinize the scriptures to get it. And may our language be marked by the accent of your words. 
Help us be people who give life and encouragement and hope to those that are broken. Help us to give grace to those that are hurting. Healing. Help us to use our words for good. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, for the glory of God. Help us. Forgive us. Help us. Empower us. I pray this in your name. Amen.